0: 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible or aren't using your phone, we do have these red Bibles uh, in the seats. And if you're using one of the red Bibles, we are on page 148. 148. Last week, we looked at the story of David, who is now king over all of Israel. He's made the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, And last week we saw that he brought up the Ark of the Covenant from uh, a village uh, out in the corner of the country into the heart of the city because David wanted uh, the king, God, to be the center of their nation. And it was a great celebration and fanfare as they welcomed God into the city. And this morning we pick up right after that in chapter 7. David is going to ask the Lord to... Uh, For the privilege of building uh, the Lord a house to live in. And so we're going to look at that story. But I want to say, as I was preparing for this message, time and time again, I was reading through the commentaries. Everyone made the comment that this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, is the most important scene in the life of David. I mean, it is the most important point of his life. Um, because it's here that the Lord makes a promise with David that will set the course of his life to come. And in fact, most commentaries said that this is perhaps the most important passage in all of the Old Testament, because in this passage, the, the focus of God's redemptive plan to bring about salvation to the nations gets focused in on specifically who it is that's gonna bring about this blessing. So this passage is crucial to understand not only the life of David, but also the whole story of the Bible and what Jesus has done for you and me and our neighbors. And so as we look at this passage, uh, I I want us to focus in not just on what it means for David, but what it means as we look through David to Jesus. Um, So we're gonna read the first 17 verses of chapter seven. And as we unpack the passage, I've got four points. I know, I'm I'm breaking away from my usual three. I've got four points today, and if you want to follow along in the bulletin, you'll see that these are the points. We're going to look at the dream, the disappointment, the plan, and the promise. Let's read and pray. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in the tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture From following after the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that through this text you are revealing yourself to us. We pray, Lord, would you plant your word into our hearts, may it produce the fruit of righteousness in us. We pray now in your spirit, would you speak to us and convict us and open our eyes to see your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First, let's look at the dream, David's dream. Not a a vision, but a desire. David, he's got this desire. Um, and and it's a desire that comes out of a great time in the life of David, and in fact, a great time for all of Israel. We read that they are experiencing a time of peace and rest. Verse 1 tells us that the king was living in his house, so the Lord had given him rest from their enemies. That means that there was military and political rest and peace. David wasn't fighting on the front lines of the battle. He was at his home. There was no internal or external threats, and on top of that, uh, we learned last week that the Ark of the Covenant is now in Jerusalem, so there's national spiritual revival. And on top of rest from their enemies, on top of peace, on top of spiritual revival, we learned that there's great uh, prosperity and wealth, because at this time, David says, I want to build a wonderful, beautiful glorious house for the Lord. He wants to build the Lord a temple, a glorious temple. So David goes to his friend, his counselor, the prophet Nathan, and he says, this is my dream, this is what I want to do. You see, the Lord's been living in this tent, and I'm in my house, and I see the tents, and I say, well, this isn't worthy of the Lord. I want to build him a a temple. And Nathan, um, he says, yes, go do that. Go do what your heart has determined to do. This is David's dream. He wants to build something beautiful and glorious for the Lord. The Lord is worthy of that. He's worthy of this great house of cedar. He's worthy for the nations to look at Israel and say, look at this house. Look who lives at this house. David wants the nations to come and behold the glory of God, the one true living God. He deserves this glory and honor. Everyone near and far will come to the house of God in Israel, and they will worship him. Nathan says, yes, go do that. As often the case, uh, it's, it's often the case today as it was true in David's life that the size and beauty and elegance of one's house signifies to all who look upon it about the importance and the character and the, the wealth and the power and the glory of whoever lives in that house. I like to drive just south of my house throughout Pepper Pike and along the Chagrin River Valley and look up in the hills and just see these beautiful houses they're, they're gorgeous. I mean, some of them are, even in their modesty, they are just so beautiful. And I, I asked Sarah, I asked myself, like, who lives here? Like, what does that person do? I chose the wrong profession. <laughs> like, who is that? Who lives in that kind of house? Our houses, uh, in some way, demonstrate to whoever looks at them something about who lives in the house. Sometimes people actually pay money to go and look at other people's houses. Uh, Down in the Akron area, the Stan Hewitt house, people pay money to go tour that house. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And you're walking around wondering, and what kind of life did they live? And what did these people do? That's what and that's the questions that we have. Who lives in a house like this? We turn beautiful homes into monuments, monuments to the people who lived in them, to the point of time in which uh, 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 they they lived and the things that they did. You now, at some point, those homes change from being a private residence to something public, for people to come and stand at the gate and look upon and be in awe. That is david's dream for the lord that the lord would have a house that the nations would come and say who is the god that lives there he must be powerful and glorious and worthy of such honor who lives in a place like this i, I think david's dream is noble He really, honestly, genuinely does want God to live in a house worthy of his glory, worthy of his greatness. He wanted people to come and know the kind of God that was the God of Israel. Every week at Story Church, we pray in our prayer for the church and the prayer for our neighbors. We pray. Lord, would you bless us as a church so that we can be a blessing to our neighbors? We pray, Lord, would you do something incredible through us so that our neighbors know who you are? At times, I have prayed, Lord, would you build us up? Would you bring more people to us? Would you make us bigger, more well-known, for the sake of our neighbors coming to know you. Maybe you've had a, a prayer like that. If you've been around Story Church, I'm sure you've joined in those kinds of prayers. Maybe your prayer is, Lord, would you make our children's ministry so incredible that any family that comes in our door or any family that moves into the neighborhood who's got kids, they know at Story Church, they can know the God of you. Or, or maybe you're praying, Lord, would you build us up in such a way that that we could have our own building, that we could grow and be a, a permanent presence in, in this community with, with signs and billboards that anyone driving down the highway would look over and see Story Church. Would you do that, Lord, so that our neighbors can know your glory? I think we understand David's dream a lot more than we first realized. We want to do something great for God. Not for us, but for our neighbors. I think David's dream is noble. He wants to build a house for God. For his neighbors. I think, though, when we ask these prayers and we dream these dreams, we we need to be really careful. We need to check our heart. We have to ask, why do we want those things? Do we want those things solely for the sake of our neighbors? I'm sure David thought, this house is going to be great. People are going to write about this house for centuries to come. And in those writings, they're going to say, King David built the house of the Lord. Do we want God to do something great through us for his sake alone or we need to check our heart and ask, am I being a little selfish? In the nations surrounding Israel, the kings would customarily build temples to their gods, but in doing so, what they were saying was, hey God, look what I built for you. Now could you do this for me? I think often as we think about trying to grow our church and advance the kingdom and share Jesus with our neighbors, we could oftentimes say, Lord, we're going to do these great things for you. Now, can you do something for us? We see in David's dream how quick it is for us to take a noble ambition and desire and make it turn inward, something for us. So we need to check our heart. David's dream was good, but maybe it's not what he should have asked for. As we see, actually, God says no. It wasn't good for David to ask this question. Let's move on. Let's, let's, ask, let's look at the disappointment of God saying no. David asks his question. The Lord says no. That night, Nathan, who's already said yes to David, he, he go do whatever your heart wants to do, the Lord visits Nathan and instructs him to speak to David and to tell him, no, David, you are not going to build me a house to dwell in. Often in our, our prayers, we ask God for clarity about a situation that we're facing. We ask God, should I, should I go down this path or this path? God, show me what I should do. Should I do this with my life or that? We, we want God, uh, we, we want to be most glorifying to God in our lives, and so we say, Lord, give us a sign. Show us what we are supposed to do. Open a door for us. Close another door. We Reveal to us what we're supposed to do. That's what we want when we pray. Yes or no, God, just show me. And David's prayer gets answered pretty clearly. No, you're not going to do this. I'm not going to let you. How do you respond when God says no to you? When he says no to your prayers, to your dreams, David must have felt disappointed. He wanted to do this great thing for the Lord. Why would the Lord say no? Our passage doesn't give us like a clear reason why he says no. Elsewhere, we do learn that God says to David, David, you are a king of war. You have fought in battles, and you have blood on your hands. You are not going to build me a house of peace. But in this passage, we don't know. God says, no, you're not going to do it. Instead of giving him reasons why he's not going to do it, instead, God chooses to reveal something about God's character and in his relationship with David that I think helps us when we feel disappointed. God reveals his character to David when he says, no. We we see this in the text. God says, you think you are going to build me a house? And he's not mocking David. He's actually saying, David, you think that I need you, but I don't need you. David, you think that by building this house, you are going to bring me glory? You think that I need you to help me be glorious? No. David, I don't need you. I am not dependent upon you. This is so true about God, that God, this is the God who existed before all time, before any of us, before anything was created. God is not dependent upon Us for existence, for being. Like God before time did not say, man, this world thing is going to be hard. I better make mankind in order to pick up my slack. God does not need our willingness to serve. God does not need our love for him and for neighbor. God does not need us. That's what he's trying to show David he does not need us for his glory. He doesn't need you for his glory. He doesn't need this church for his glory. We will come and go, churches will come and go. His glory is not dependent upon what we do for him. His glory alone exists. He's saying, David, I do not need you to make me great. I am all ready. Great. You can add to my greatness. I don't need you. But let me remind you you need me. I don't need you, but you need me. Look at verse 8. He reminds them I am the one who took you out from the pasture. I am the one that took you from leading sheep. I am the one that made you prince over all of Israel. I am the one who has been with you from the beginning. I am the one who has been with you wherever you've gone. I was there when you were on the run from Saul. I was there with you when you were hiding in the cave. I was there when you were anointed king over all of Israel. I was with you the whole time. I cut off all your enemies from before you. David, you need me. I don't need you, but you need me. I think what the Lord is trying to show David in his request to do something great for God is say to him, being with God, experiencing God's presence is better and more important than doing anything for God. Let me say that again. What David is learning here, and what I think we need to learn today, is that doing things for God is not nearly as important as understanding God being with us. Being with God is more important than doing things for God. I'm reminded of the story in the life of Jesus. He, he goes one time and, and has a meal with his friends, Mary and Martha. These two are sisters. They're the sisters of, of Lazarus, whom Jesus would raise from the dead. And he goes to have a meal with Mary and Martha. And as he's sitting there and, and they're, he's talking, and there's a lot of people in the house, Martha is busy. She, she's busy caring for Jesus and making it hospitable. You can almost imagine like She's ducking in and out of the kitchen. She's making sure everyone's glasses are topped off, making sure there's enough food on the table, making sure everyone's comfortable. She is busy, busy, busy. And Martha looks over at her sister Mary, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening to him, just sitting there with him. And Martha goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell my sister to get up and help me. Can't you see that I'm busy working for you? Jesus says, no, Martha, don't you understand? Mary has chosen the better portion. What he means is, it is more important to be with me right now than to work for me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it is more important for you to be with Jesus than to do anything for him? I, I struggle to remember that. I, I struggle as as pastor of this church. I, I think sometimes if I just schedule more opportunities for us as a church to do things, whether it's community groups or Bible studies or service projects or services or whatever, I just, I think that if I just ask you guys to do more and more and more for the Lord, that somehow that will result in you growing spiritually and closer to the Lord. I need to remember, no, more important than you doing things for God is you being with God. I need to remember that. I'm sorry if I have steered us wrong at different times. Are you too busy doing things for God that you aren't being with God? Are your mornings too busy trying to get out the door for work or send your kids off to school that that you don't have time to sit and reflect on the mercies of God that are new for you that day? Are we too busy running around and sending, you know, activities and hobbies and work and whatever, that we don't have time carved into our lives to just sit and be with the Lord? God is trying to show David and show us that it's more important to be with God than to do for God. I love how actually David, or God shows this so poignantly to David. Um, In verse 6, God says to David, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. It's hard to see, but did you catch it? Israel thinks that they have been carrying the Lord in the tent wherever they've gone. They've been doing these things for God over and over again. And, and God says, don't you realize I was the one that carried them out of Egypt. I have been the one carrying them throughout the wilderness. You think that you have been doing things for me, but I've been there carrying you along the whole time. Stop trying to do things for me and start being with me. So we've seen David's dream. He wants to do something great. In his disappointment, God says no, but in saying no, he says, hey, stop trying to do for me. Start trying to be with me. Now, let's look at the plan, because God isn't just saying, no, David, I'm not going to do anything with you. He's saying, no, David, you're not going to do this, but let me, let me let you in on a secret. I'm going to do far more than you imagine. There's a plan here, David. In saying no to David's dream of the temple, God isn't saying no. He's saying, David, I have a plan for you. I have a plan to make you great. Look at the second half of verse 9. God says, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies." God is saying, I have a plan for you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you and my people a land. I'm going to watch over them in such a way that their enemies will not disturb them. They will have rest. As you and I look at this plan, it sounds pretty good. But for David to hear this, it actually sounds far better. We need to understand, how did David actually hear this plan? For David, this is not the first time that he has heard God unfold this plan. David knows that as soon as God starts speaking about this, David remembers God's plan that he gave to Abraham. Way back at the very beginning of the story of Israel, God lays out this very plan For Abraham. You remember that story? It starts in the garden where God made Adam and Eve in perfect love and fellowship with Himself and one another. It it was paradise. There was no sin, no wickedness, no evil. Their relationship with one another and with God was beautiful. But then sin entered the world through a serpent. And that sin broke their relationship with God. It strained their relationship with one another. And because of that sin, they were kicked out of the garden. But as they left, God said, I have a plan. I have a plan that one day there will be a son born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He will put an end to evil and wickedness and sin itself. That's my plan. And we don't hear anything for a little bit. But then in Genesis chapter 12, out of the wilderness, God's voice calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to come and follow me. And I am giving you a plan. I am saying, come to me. I will make your name great. I will give you a people and a nation after you, and I will give them this land that they can dwell in, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, so that anyone who curses them, they will be cursed. If anyone blesses them, well, they will be blessed. And Abraham, through you and through your nation and your people will come blessing for the nations. What God is saying to Abraham was, my plan is this, there will come from you the serpent crusher, the snake killer to rid the world of wickedness will come now through you, and by him, blessing will come to the nations. That is God's plan. And for when, so when God says this to David, David is immediately thinking, God's plan is still at work. And now the lens is focusing closer, not just on the nation of Israel, but on the house of David. So that through David, God is going to bring about blessing to the nations. I'm going to get to the promise of that blessing in a minute, but I think we need to learn something from this. David's prayer was answered with a no. And at the same time, God said, but I am working behind the scenes to orchestrate something that you don't even know how it's going to happen, but I have a plan. Do you trust me? Do you trust that I am working behind the scenes, not only for you, but for the blessing of others? We shouldn't apply this necessarily directly to us as though every time God closes a door, he opens a window, but... When we don't get our way, when our prayers don't get answered, the Lord is inviting us to trust him. His plan didn't end with Jesus at the cross. His plan continues to unfold before us every day. We know how it ends. Like We know the end of the plan, that the the serpent killer does crush the head of the snake, that evil and wickedness and pain and suffering is done away with. That the Lord will wipe away every tear. That there will be healing for the nations. We know the end of his plan, even if right now we don't know. Even if right now God says, no, you're not going to do that for me. Even if right now it doesn't make sense, God's plan is still unfolding. Do you trust that? God is inviting David to trust that the plan in place is working. Let's look now at the promise. God says to David in verse 11, David, you want to build me a house? I am going to build you a house. That is my plan. That is my promise. I am going to build you a house house. And and by a house, God means, David, I'm going to set up for you a dynasty. He goes on, he says, hey, after your days are fulfilled and after you die and go lie down with your fathers, I will raise up after you, your offspring, and they will sit on your throne. David, you're going to have a dynasty. Sons are going to come from you who will be king over my people. Now, at this point, David must have thought, that sounds awesome. What a wonderful promise. Now, what do I have to do to keep it? He knows that Saul, before him, was king, but Saul didn't have a son that would sit on his throne. Saul died, and his son, Jonathan, also died. David needs to know what does he need to do to keep God's promise. And I think it's natural for us to to think that way. Like when things are promised to us, we think, what do I have to do to maintain this promise? Sometimes I I find myself telling my kids, hey, if you clean up your room or if you keep uh, a good behavior, well, then we can go get ice cream tonight. I'm promising you ice cream, but in order to do that, you have to meet the condition of playing nice with one another. Uh, before the service, I was talking with Rob, our musician, and he was saying when he was in high school, his mom said, hey, Rob, I'm going to pay your car insurance for you. Wonderful promise. But you have to maintain uh, at least a 3.0 GPA. When things are promised to us, we tend to think, all right, what must I do to maintain this blessing? I think David's asking the same question in his head. What must I do to receive this promise? It's a conditional promise. This blessing remains as long as the conditions are met. But then the Lord continues. And he says, This son will be, or this, this child will be to me a son, and I will be a father to him. When he sins, I will discipline him like any loving father would. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Not like it did with Saul. Remember, Saul, I did depart my love from him. I took the kingdom from him. But your son, I am going to give him my steadfast, never-ending, always-and-forever love so that his kingdom and your dynasty will live and reign forever. David is receiving this promise that is completely unconditional. This promise does not depend on King David's morality, his achievements for God, nothing. God promises it to him unconditionally. And we should have expected that here. Because every time the Lord promises to his people his salvation and redemptive promises, they are always unconditional. When he calls Abraham out of the wilderness, he does not say, hey, if you are upright before me, then I will make your name great. Hey, if you are obedient to me, well, then you can live in this land. No, unconditionally, I have promised to you, I will do this. I think that's hard for us understand that God's covenant promises, they are not based upon our works, but wholly by his grace. We do not work to receive those promises, and we do not work to maintain those promises. The blessing of God's redemptive plan do not come to us because we earn it. It is by grace alone. David would have a son, and he'd call him Solomon. And Solomon actually would build the temple. And then after Solomon, there was another son, and he reigned on the throne, son of David on the throne. And then after him, and after him, and again, and again, and again, for 400 years, there was a son of David on the throne in Israel. But then they were sent into exile. And everyone wondered, does God's promise remain? Is God true to his word? What must we do to get it back? And then shining like a light into darkness comes great David's greater son. The opening of Matthew's gospel traces his lineage back to David. Jesus is the son of David. I I love how when the angel comes to to Mary and Joseph, uh, there's this promise that he will reign on the throne of his father David. So Jesus comes onto the scene as the true king of Israel. The one through whom the blessings of the nation come. Because in Jesus, he crushes the serpent. He deals with sin. He offers us forgiveness. He cleanses us from our wickedness. He died in our place. And then he rose again because he sits now as the king forever. I love how the book of Romans starts out. Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection. David and his sons would be called the sons of God from this promise, but we have one who is greater than they, the very son of God, who defeated the serpent and reigns forever on his throne in heaven, Jesus Christ.